This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is 3, 2, 1. The Buck Sexton Show. All right, team. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hunt. Great to have you. As always, thank you so much for joining. Phone lines open 888-900-3393. It is looking like I will be on Fox tonight. Those of you who remember when I used to do a fair amount of Fox. Um, It could change, but uh, as of right now, uh, the... Kelly file is uh, supposed to have me on. So looking forward to that very much. Um, I, yes, I'll be able to do Fox. I am able to do Fox again. So that's exciting. Uh, I just want to put that out there in case you uh, are near TV tonight. Uh, I'll put it on Facebook. It, it could always change. As you know, these things are, are variable depending on the news cycle and everything else. But as of now, um, I wanted to announce to you that at least I am, I am free to do Fox shall we say. Um, I'm no longer only doing CNN, which is, I can also do CNN. This is uh, good news. I'm uh, looking forward to it. So more chance for me to uh, get out there and make points and argue with people and have Team Buck rooting for me at home. Appreciate it very much, as always. Okay, I wanted to revisit a story yesterday. Speaking about CNN, I was going to go on last night, actually. This is why I was thinking about this. Uh, I was invited on to talk about the OSU uh, terrorist. And I thought, okay, this is usually one of these situations where I'm going to go on. And it's so, I I could script the whole thing out beforehand. I didn't get to go on. And I'll get into the why in a second. But I could script the whole thing out beforehand. I could say, uh, I I could tell you what the, how the anchors will sort of cover this, uh, how different experts based particularly some of the experts that, that lean left, and, and most of the, the analysts and pundits that go on CNN clearly lean left. Not all of them, but most of them. Uh, but even on national security, they lean left. And I know that there's going to be this, the hesitation game, right? You've heard of the imitation game? When it comes to terrorism, the left plays the hesitation game, meaning, ooh, we, we don't want to jump to any conclusions here. You've seen this now so many times before. And what they don't realize is that they're in a very uh, there's a very clear tension that arises from this kind of behavior, right? 
that when they stop and try to insist that people not understand things or or not just use their powers of, of observation, right? The media is trying to tell you there's no pattern. There's no uh, greater threat. There's nothing about Islam that in larger numbers than other religions or if, at this period in time for any number of external factors, which we can certainly discuss and add into the mix here, but a, a disproportionate amount of terrorism is committed by people in the name of Islam in the world today. That's the fundamental, that's the baseline understanding that anybody reading the newspaper, anybody watching TV, anyone who has a, a just a, a passing familiarity with what's going on in the world around them, that's what they would think. And now I know that there's even the school of argument that you'll hear that that's because the media more voraciously covers Islamic terrorism uh, or the, the, the way the media frames things and portrays things is inherently going to make it seem like there's more Islamic terrorism in the world than there are other kinds of terrorism. And sometimes I even find that it's useful to add in the descriptor of lethal terrorism, because otherwise what you have are people looking at the Southern Poverty Law Center or some other uh, group that is, how do we say this politely, full of le crap, and look at their statistics and they'll say, oh, well, there's more eco-terrorism in America than Islamic terrorism. Oh, really? When was the last time when, when was the last time we had to go to war with eco-terrorists because they were state-sponsored and, and planning to bring the country and really the world to its knees? It's been a long time. I think it's never happened. Are we spending billions and billions of dollars, really trillions of dollars over the last few decades, depending on how you want to calculate it, trying to stop eco-terrorists or white supremacist terrorists? These days, white supremacist terrorists, you might get people saying, oh, well, that's the real threat that America faces. Um, so yes, uh, they lie about these things. They are dishonest about these things. Your basic powers of observation are all you need to understand this reality, but they keep pushing against it. And I will tell you this, and I, I like to sometimes give you, because it feels like if you're listening to the show, even if I have never written to you or, or heard from you directly on Facebook or Twitter or an email, it feels like you're part of, of, a, of a family, of a tribe. We have a relation to each other. Uh, you are the reason that I spend a disproportionate, a vast share of my life just trying to know as much as I can about everything that's going on so I can do the best show I can here. And also with all of you adding in your thoughts, calling in, sending me information. But there's a bond that forms there. And so I also like to, because we have that bond, I, I like to sometimes give you a little bit of a behind the scenes. I was going to go on CNN last night to talk about this issue of terrorism at OSU and at, at Ohio State. And they were going to have me on. And the debate was going to be, and I, I know I'm sort of walking through a phantom debate, but you've, some of you have certainly seen me in these discussions in the past. And I, I'm usually debating people, by the way, who have never actually worked a terrorism case, have never uh, held a clearance and specifically worked on terrorism-related issues, uh, occasionally they'll put on, you know, a, a general who is a big Hillary supporter who retired in like 1994 to explain to me what the like the latest in cutting edge uh, jihadist recruitment online is. And I'm always kind of like, OK, deference to this individual service to the military. 
but not deference to their expertise and their opinion on the matter at hand here. And this is one thing that you should always try to be aware of when you see some of these people on TV. Did they really get their hands dirty on this issue, or were they just somebody who had a fancy title a long time ago, whether civilian or, or on the military side, and then they just dine out on that in cable news for the next few decades? Well, the way it usually works is someone will go on with the OSUK, someone will go on TV and they'll say, well, you know, it's there's individual, uh, what's his name? Uh, I'm trying to pull up his name right now as we're here talking. Abdul Razak Ali Artan, 18-year-old Somali refugee. He was the assailant. He ran around. He injured 11 people, was shot dead by an Ohio State cop, born in Somalia, spent seven years in a refugee camp in Pakistan. He moved to the U.S. with his mom and siblings in Tribeca. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> We've moved together as mom and siblings to the United States. Somebody just sent me a message that said, can you meet me in Tribeca later? And uh, my phone rang. So that was what that happened. Moved with his mom and siblings to the United States in 2014. Um, and uh, you would think that because they were taken in, that this would be a less likely, uh, less likely situation for somebody to turn against the country that had offered them safe harbor. So they'd go down the facts, right? They'd run you through, uh, they would run you through the various stats, background information, because these are things that are going to come out one way or the other, and they have to set the context for the story. But then it always turns into, can we really know his motivation, though? Can we really know? And, of course, in this case, in the minutes before the attack, Artan, Abdul Artan, posted on Facebook that he was sick and tired of mistreatment of Muslims worldwide. And he did and he praised Anwar al-Awlaki, former really chief propagandist for al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And this is a lone wolf style attack, the sort that ISIS and al-Qaeda have been calling upon believers to engage in for a long time. We're all very familiar with this. But it all fits into the same it all fits into the same step by step process here and the way the media covers the way we are supposed to discuss this. Uh, they give you the facts and then they do the slow roll. You know, th- then all of a sudden they have the hesitation game. Well, let's not jump to any conclusions. And what will happen is as the information comes out, in this case, the Facebook, uh, the you know Facebook posting and. All the other things that we really, you know, this is the equivalent, by the way, of somebody going out and murdering someone and the police find a long handwritten note in his home of, you know, I killed so and so for the following reasons. And this is why I did all these things. And then could you imagine the police saying, well, we really don't know his motivations, though. You know, he said it was because this guy owed him money and he had had enough and people weren't treating him well. And so he was going to get even. So he went out and he killed this guy. The police wouldn't say, yeah, the handwritten note by the perpetrator that we found that describes in detail the murder and why he did it. They wouldn't say, well, we're not sure about his motivations, because if you really want to play that game, you can never be totally sure about motivations. And motivations are an inherently complex thing. We can add in all sorts of motivations to things or add in all sorts of different attributes to one's motivations. Right. This is not something that is a surprise to any of us we could talk this is the sort of old liberal trope oh yes he he decapitated uh, seven people and went on some serial killing spree but they were so mean to him when he was a child your honor perhaps we should just give him 
you know, two years in prison instead of life or whatever. You understand what I'm saying. I mean, that, that wouldn't happen. But, you know, he should be put in a mental institution because he was picked last for dodgeball. He shouldn't have to actually suffer for the crimes, the heinous crimes that he committed. Right. This is the old uh, back in the day. You'd sort of see this play out in in courtrooms because the liberals on the left used to always try to find root causes, they would say. Well, root causes for jihadist terrorism can be varied. They have all sorts of uh, different profiles of these individuals. Some of them come from war-torn countries. Some of them come from prosperous Western countries. Some of them are citizens of those countries. Some of them are refugees. Some of them are immigrants. The one thing that binds them all together is a belief in a strain of Islam. That's the one thing. The one thing that brings them to engage in mass murder, to think that mass murder is just, and to be willing to oftentimes trade their lives for the lives of innocents in the process is a belief in a strain of Islam. We call it jihadism, but we could discuss more. Even just that is a point of contention. So I was going to go on CNN last night. I'm going to have this discussion, right? Can we really know, Buck? Can we ever really know? I actually think that if we were able to resurrect the dead, if we were able to bring back Mr. Abdul Artan and sit him on set with me and whatever other pseudo-experts they would put on some CNN panel, and they asked Artan, resurrected, uh, why did you do this? And he said, I did this because I wanted to honor Anwar al-Awlaki. I did this because I want to kill infidels. I did this because of mistreatment of Muslims. They would say, thank you for your opinion, Mr. Artan. And then the experts would go back to saying, you know, he really did this because of U.S. foreign policy mistakes and because of Islamophobia. And they just don't care. You see, the reality, the truth is irrelevant to the more important narrative. And the narrative is that we are racist. We push people to do this. It's our fault. In fact, you can't make this stuff up. In this instance, Artan was highlighted as a student at Ohio State University to show how diverse it is and how wonderful it is and how great it is. And he even mentioned in this profile of him that he felt that the media's treatment of Muslims, this was like a year ago, the media's treatment of Muslims was unfair and sometimes that could cause fear. So the guy who says that Muslims being portrayed as terrorists is unfair became a Muslim terrorist a year later. Think the media is interested in this? They want to tell you more about this? No, because the hesitation game is followed quickly by the elimination game, as in they eliminate it from the lineup on various shows. They're not going to want to talk about it. And if you push them on this, because now the, now the justification, or rather the um, motivation, the way that this, uh, he would, would be mass murderer, he didn't kill anybody, which he's also, thank, thank heavens, he's a terrible terrorist, uh, which is good news. Um, and he's dead now, which is also good news. But he was a terrible terrorist. And a lot of these idiots are. Uh, th- thankfully, he didn't have training and, and didn't have any tactical proficiency or else this could have he could have easily killed 30, 40, 50 people. Look at what some of the other terrorists, uh, actors in this country all on their own have been able to pull off. Mass carnage, horrific body count. So we are going to, or rather the, the media is going to sort of pass over this because there's no, no one was killed. They're going to sort of hope that this won't reignite this debate over refugees, 
Remember, refugees are supposed to be no threat. If you think refugees can ever be a threat, specifically refugees from Muslim-majority countries, war-torn countries, which Somalia certainly is, by the way. I mean, Somalia has been nothing but war-torn for decades. It's also about 99.9% Muslim. Uh, if you even want to talk about that, you're a xenophobe, you're a racist, you're an Islamophobe. And then there's an attack like this, and they want to pretend that we can't know the motivations. They didn't have me uh, come in last night to talk about this. Do you want to know why? They weren't sure about, they didn't have enough information about the attacker's motivations. So we couldn't have that debate. I was very close to writing back and saying, okay, period. He's a jihadist though, period. But what would that do? They don't want to hear it. They don't want to have the talk. They don't want to have the discussion. Because it's, in this case, already been discovered, right? There's no lag time. It's not like they've had to wait four or five days to see the Facebook posts. It's not like they have to be in a position where they um, can stall for a few days, wait for other things. to. So now they just, they're just going to move on. They're just going to move on. But that's the way the discussion would have gone last night. Can we ever really know? Are we ever totally sure? Is he definitely a terrorist? Maybe, maybe people were mean to him. Maybe somebody stole his lunch in the third grade. Oh, he comes from a terrible circumstance. Well, don't a lot of refugees come from terrible circumstances? Why did this guy decide that he was going to kill a bunch of people that, by the way, had nothing to do with his terrible circumstances? Somalia is a hellhole because of Somalis. Somalia is not the fault of the United States, right? It's Somalis killing Somalis in Somalia. That's what's been going on there for quite... In fact, we tried to help them out. Go watch Black Hawk Down and you'll see. Tried to feed people. Tried to stop a famine. They, didn't li- they, they being the Islamist jihadists, didn't like that very much. But he killed innocent people, or I'm sorry, tried to kill innocent people on a college campus just because. All right, we got to go to break. I'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton. On the Blaze Radio Network. Team, if you've never thought about one before, I encourage you to consider a silencer. And if you think you might want to check one out, there's no better place to go than silencershop.com. They offer the simplest buying experience for a silencer for a suppressor, period. Buying from Silencer Shop, by the way, is just like buying local since your local dealer is setting the price and making the profit so you can get the best price and know you're supporting your local businesses. Now, Silencer Shop offers the best selection of products from the top brands and tries to keep all the most popular models in stock. That helps you get what you want faster. And uh, they've got the best selection. I'm telling you, go check it out. It's really cool. You'll enjoy even just reading about all this stuff. Silencershop.com, silencershop.com, help make the world a quieter place. Uh, I think I've got some photos up somewhere of me shooting with suppressors. It's good times. Good times. You'll enjoy it. Uh, so, oh, I wanted to, I, somebody and Team Buck Ombudsman, which all of you, if you choose to be, are. Anytime I say anything wrong, please do let me know. Uh, the best way to do it is Twitter because I'm always live tweeting throughout the show. But you can also send me a Facebook message. Facebook messages because there's so many. and I try to go through them and respond. Uh, those tend to come in later. But maybe I could try to start live Facebook messaging during the show, too, because I feel like a lot of you are on I post, but I don't look at the messages. And that might be, maybe we'll give that a shot. I'll see. And I should also do a Facebook Live now that I think about it. It's been a long time. We haven't hung out 
via Facebook Live in quite a while. Um, I think the beard, especially if I'm going to start doing a little bit more of the traditional cable news, the beard is in jeopardy. Or some of you call it the pseudo half beard or the shave your neck because that's the way you have a beard. What? I didn't know there were all these beard rules. John, did you know about all the beard rules? I thought you just like let your facial hair grow and that was that was manly and rugged and apparently you have to trim it and tend to it like it's a garden on your face like oh it's just you know you just have to tend to it make sure that you know you're make sure that you're growing the flowers properly or whatever I don't know so I'm learning I had I learned the hard way about about beard beardiness or halfway beardness uh, I want to talk to you more about this OSU thing and, and also then move a little bit on to the latest Trump hysteria because everyone just needs to chill when it comes to Trump but they're not listening to me uh, because even even if they are right, they're not going to be right for a few months. And at this point, I'm just not sure I can take every day Trump freakout dial to 11. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and, and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. The Buck Sexton Show. On the Blaze Radio Network. Phone lines open 888-900-3393. Dan in Columbus, Ohio. What's up, Dan? Hey, Buck. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Shields Shield, high. Shields high, man. Are, are, did you know anybody on campus? I mean, I know you're out there in Ohio. Yeah, um, I'm a graduate. Uh, my sister is there doing her Ph.D. work. Uh, she was in um, Denny Hall, which is about 200, 300 yards away from where the attack happened. Um, she was getting ready to, for an interview, um, and people she was with heard the shots, and they they barricaded the doors and a window that didn't have any or a room that didn't have any windows, and they sheltered in place. Man, uh, it's a scary situation. I mean, I, I can't imagine being told. I mean, the, the best advice that the campus was putting out was what was it? It was uh, something something fight, right? Run, it was yeah, run run hide fight or something. Was that it? A run. I'll, yeah, I'll find um, out because yeah, it was run hide fight. Um, it went out out, out over. Oh, that's right, run hide fight. System. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, yeah, it was. I you know I found out about 10 a.m. and I instantly turned on the news. And as the details started to come out um, about how he launched the attack with the car, followed with the knife, 
um, it was evident that it was very likely at that point that it was either somebody that was ISIS inspired or it was at least using tactics that they had, uh, that they had put out. Um, the guy had been interviewed. He was actually a transfer student. It was his first semester at Ohio state and he was interviewed on the first day. Right. I meant to correct that by the way, not to interrupt you yet, but that was what I said. The ombudsman, you guys are right. I forgot. He, he actually was, it was new. He was a new student pretty much. Yeah. And, um, you know, the fact that he said those things three months before, almost to the day before he carried out a terror attack is um, a tragic irony. Um, <clears throat> the other thing I, I kind of wanted to point out was that um, he may have not been a great terrorist, thankfully, but ultimately the reason that the, the casualty count was so low is because there happened to be a policeman on the scene who engaged the suspect within one minute of the initial attack. Uh, yeah, so that, the, the response time is not something that's been getting a lot of coverage. Yeah, um, speaking of the coverage, the thing, the, one of the main reasons I called in was to kind of back up your point about the way the media is handling this. Um, there's a link to an ABC News article about the incident that shows up on Drudge. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a journalism major from Ohio State, so I, I like to kind of look at the details. And there's a line in this ABC News article that says, Sources told ABC News that he is a of Somali descent, uh, and it's very obvious that they they restructured that sentence. And that almost, I'm almost positive that because of the way that it's it says a of, it's almost certain that they removed the word either immigrant or refugee. Um, they they actually went into the story and spiked a word because the word is politically charged at the moment because of you know the presidential rhetoric that's gone on during the campaign and with the incoming administration, they definitely don't want this person planted as either an immigrant or a refugee, because that doesn't really fit the political narrative. No, they're going to do everything they can to make sure that that is uh, skipped over in, entirely as a part of this. It, it's amazing. The, the same way, Dan, that the media came out and, and said that covering Trump in a way that was overtly hostile w was essentially an eth ethical obligation that the ethical obligation to truth and facts and objectivity was was sort of ha under an override by the ethical obligation to destroy Trump. They feel the same way about jihadist terrorism. And what's funny, I mean, it's not really funny because it's, it's also terrible and annoying. But uh, what you see is that they do this with pretty much every major topic. But it's always kind of the exception, right? You know, th that if you push a lot of these journalists, they'll get to a point where they go, well, on that issue, you can't be a bystander. I was like, well, how many issues do you have where you can't be a bystander and be objective? You know, how many issues are you not just reporting the facts on? You go down the list, pretty much everything that's important. I think a lot of the prominent uh, print and TV journalists on the left in this country, uh, which is kind of a re repetitive, I mean, just prominent TV and, and print journalists, period. They think that they have a, a get out of jail free card. They, 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 they have a sort of special dispensation to act in this way. And with Islamic terrorism, it's really obvious. Yeah, and, you know, I think one of the other things that is, maybe it's just me because I, yeah, I'm in, in the local area and I kind of put these things together, but I called in, I think it was about a year and a half ago, when there was actually a different stabbing that was on the east side of Columbus at a, a Jewish-owned deli. There was a, a Muslim, I believe Somali man, that, con that conducted a stabbing attack there, too. And... I haven't heard any, not in the local coverage, not in the local paper, not in any of the national coverage, the fact that 
you know, these two incidents linked together because Columbus has the second highest Somali immigrant and refugee population in the nation, second only to, I believe, Minnesota. So, I mean, it's you have, I think, 30 to 40,000 uh, Somali immigrants and refugees here. And here within a year and a half, two years, you have two separate incidents where people that are from this community have carried out tactics, carried out attacks using similar tactics. And I think that not linking and not at least drawing a parallel between the two is kind of poor journalism, or at least not thorough journalism. And until we start, you know, trying to identify some of the patterns, like I'm sure law enforcement is aware of this. I'm sure it's a conversation that's come up. Absolutely. Look, when I was in the counterterrorism or uh, intelligence division of the NYPD, you know, we 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 covered non-Islamic terrorists. They're just they were just really uh, the the people that were assigned that just didn't have much to do. That's just the that's just reality. It's just objective reality. You know, we we had people, we had other units. They just didn't have anything to do. All the cases we were dealing with were Islamic terrorism. I mean, all the real cases, I should say. I mean, all the cases where people were worried. So, but we had to have these other, think about that. We had to disperse resources because there was a concern that it would look like we were only focused on Islamic terrorism at the expense of other terrorism. So we had to pretend there was other terrorism, put resources on that terrorism, even though it was non-existent. That's how crazy things are. And, And that's also, that brings me back to, they want us to ignore the observable. Uh, and you're on observation. Dan from Ohio, man, great to talk to you. Thank you for your call, uh, Shields High. That, that's where this runs into trouble. And this is, again, part of the power. I, and I know that for some of you this is giving him too much credit, but part of the power of Trumpism is at least he doesn't do this. At least he doesn't, be, at least he doesn't stand around and say, well, you know, we don't really know if this guy was like a Muslim terrorist or not. People are sick of it. They're just sick. I'm sick of it. I don't even really enjoy having that debate anymore because I realize that for the experts who go on TV, a lot of them, the ones who say we can't tell what the motivations are, was this inspired by ISIS, was this inspired by al-Qaeda or even directed by one of those two entities, they're just virtue signaling. They know that by going on CNN or going on somewhere else and saying, well, we can't really know and there's other things we have to take into account here, you know, they're going to get invited to the next Aspen Institute conference and they'll get overpaid to write some academic paper for a think tank that no one's going to read. But they're in the system, you know, because most of the system, especially when you're talking about IR, international relations stuff, uh, international affairs, and, and yes, even a lot of the sort of national security intelligentsia is buying into this nonsense. Most of it takes this point of view that, you know, there's really nothing, that terrorism has nothing to do with, that, that Islam has nothing to do with terrorism and terrorism has nothing to do with Islam. I mean, these are very... I understand complicated issues and and these are questions that do require or these are statements that do require depth and nuance. It's not as simple as because clearly you got 1.7 billion people, a small percentage of them are terrorists, but a small percentage of 1.7 billion people that are trying to disrupt civilization as we know it and have had some success in doing that. And, you know, you're reminded of it every time you go to the airport, by the way, uh, that's significant. It's notable as I'm. As I have told you before, if somebody told me that, well, you know, you're in a city of one million people and only, you know, only a hundred of them have uh, have contagious smallpox, I would still that would be a concern. It wouldn't be. I mean, there's such a small percentage of smallpox infections. And I mean, you know, come on. Is it a is it a threat to me? Is it trying to be a threat to all of us? That's the difference, by the way, between jihadist terrorism and a lot of the other terrorism that's out there. They're not trying to sort of bend political will for a specific issue. They seek domination. It is 
It is a totalitarian and global ideology. They're not trying to get us to concede on one thing. They're trying to get us to concede on all things. This is a very important difference. All right. Eco-terrorists, I mean, I don't know. They're wacky. Maybe they do want us to concede a lot of stuff. But generally speaking, you know, they want no more, uh, I don't know, no, no more hair care products tested on bunnies or something. You know, that, that's and they usually don't blow up buildings full of people. They just spray paint something. Or whatever. I, I, it's almost it's silly to talk about, isn't it? When you think about comparing these groups. But whenever somebody wants to be smug and, and be a little punk on TV, they say, well, look at the FBI statistics on terrorism. Most terrorism is not Islamic. And if I'm not there or somebody else who hasn't paid attention to the numbers and hasn't actually worked in terrorism, sometimes they get away with it. As you know, the rejoinder to this, the response you have to give is, okay, we're talking about violent, lethal terrorism. And then all of a sudden, all the other terrorism we're talking about falls away. Then the you know Southern Poverty Law Center and these other uh, professional whiner groups that are out there will not be able to make this case that we need to be as concerned about other forms of terrorism as we do about Islamic terrorism. This is reality. But again, the power of Trumpism is on some issues on some. And we're going to talk about the whole flag burning thing and everything in the next hour. And we got we got a lot, to, a lot to cover today on some issues. He just says what we all know. And he says it in a way that's clear and it's unambiguous. And everybody who's doing the other stuff, who's doing the oh, we can't know the motivations. Oh, Buck, it's too early to talk about the motivations. Oh, we shouldn't talk about Islam in the context of this terrorism because we don't want to offend people. I think most of the American people are actually sick of it. Saying that Islam has something to do with terrorism or that rather there's a lot of terrorism that comes from within Islam. It's not all of it, but it's uh, unfortunately way too big a problem. Doesn't make you a bigot. Doesn't make you a xenophobe. Doesn't mean you hate Muslims. Doesn't mean you don't have Muslim friends. Doesn't even mean that you think that Islam is a bad religion or a bad faith or anything else. It just means that you're looking at objective reality and dealing with it. And after OSU, once again, here we are. A guy acting out, trying to kill a whole lot of innocent people, just going about their daily lives and doing so specifically as he writes. So in his own words, for terrorism, and we have to sit around and pretend that we don't know why he's doing it. And it's so complicated and we don't want to offend anybody. And oh, my gosh, all the Islamophobia. There's going to be mean comments about people in burqas. Oh, burkinis. We need to talk about that, too. Got a lot. Stay with me. Be right back. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. Some of you may have seen this: a Somali American, nineteen-year-old uh, woman. Um, she is up in Minnesota. She was in the semifinal of the Miss Minnesota USA pageant. There are a lot of these pageants. I, I don't really know what the differences are between them, but it's a beauty pageant, and there's a bikini portion of the beauty pageant. Now, I do think this whole pageant thing, and I, people get mad at me. You, you know, is is it a beauty contest or is it a like whole person contest with beauty as part of it? What's the proportion? It's a little. Come on. All right, fine. Just putting that. I'm gonna I'm gonna put that aside because people get mad at me. But I just feel like 
are we just are we are we being superficial and are we being a little bit gross or are we actually going to pretend that this is about more than that but is that even worse in a way okay side note but a young woman who is uh, 19 years old she came out at the Miss Minnesota USA swimsuit uh, section she came out during this part and you can see that this video online wearing a burkini which uh, looks like Sort of a tradition. I mean, I, I guess maybe it's wicking or something, or it's fast drying. I, I don't know. But to me, when I saw this, I was like, well, that it, it looks like she's wearing just sort of traditional Islamic clothing. I mean, there's not. She's got a hijab on. Uh, it's er, er, she's covered down to her wrists. She's her entirety of her legs are covered. And of course, everybody, because we live in the culture we live in now, uh, at least the sort of elite side of the culture, everyone praises this and says this is great. All over. I'm sure there are also people who said mean things, but it's being highlighted as. Uh, as it's being fantastic. Here you have, I don't even know who this woman is, but Liz Sawyer on Twitter, who's verified. Halima uh, Aiden starts off Miss Minnesota USA swimsuit segment to big cheers from the crowd. Announcer says she's making history tonight. Is wearing a full body covering in a bikini contest making the kind of history we want to make everybody? I, I don't understand. What, what, is the, what is this? What point is this trying to make? You know, if I showed up and I said I wanted to be a, a Ralph Lauren underwear model and I showed up and I'm like, well, I'm only allowed. I, I just I have to wear a muumuu, but I'm sure you guys can get a sense of what's on underneath. I, I wouldn't get the job. Right. I'm showing up to be an underwear model and I'm wearing a muumuu that I won't take off. I don't think anybody and I know people say, oh, it's religion. Well, yeah, OK. But, you know, if you're if it's so if the religious belief is so important that you don't want to show that part of your body. Maybe don't be in a bikini contest. I don't know. That seems pretty straightforward to me. But this notion that we're supposed to celebrate this. Um, and by the way, I'm not past whether you like that there's swimsuit portions of these beauty pageants or not. That's a completely separate discussion. I'm just saying, if you're going to participate in a swimsuit portion, I think you should have to wear a swimsuit. OK, and I don't think that it's something we should all be forced to sort of clap for and say, it's amazing. She's making history because she comes out. Not in the full beekeeper, but, you know, head to toe covered. It's a beauty pageant. OK, you're not supposed. What's next? I don't know how this is supposed to go. If somebody wants to go full burqa for the whole beauty pageant, because that's what they th- and there are places where that's what people think their religion requires of them. Do we get to just sort of play a guessing game? Well, I think Miss Afghanistan this year should be the champion because while we can't tell, we know what's underneath is spectacular. I mean, that's ridiculous. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome back. Good to have you in the Freedom Hunt. Hour two begins now with our friend Andy McCarthy. He is a contributing editor at National Review, former federal prosecutor for the Southern District of New York. Andy, great, uh, great to have you as always. Buck, good to be with you. 
so let's start off with the uh, the reaction, the the coverage of the attack yesterday at Ohio State. If I could, Andy, I see here, and this is the sort of thing that I, I might have I might have tweeted out, um, and and then thought was too snarky, but it's clearly not. You know, s- still searching for motive after we find. You know, they're always still searching for motive on CNN.com right now. Just posted in the last hour, searching for motive in OSU attack. The New York Times doesn't even have, as I can see it on its front page now, a story that even touches on yesterday's uh, terrorist attack at Ohio State University. When when do we know? When do we get to know the motive? I mean, the guy posted a Facebook <laughs> manifesto saying this is my motive. When do we get to have the press say, yeah, we know the motive? Yeah, you know, next to the stories about how we don't have the motive yet, you'll have one decrying the fake news, right? Um, that's pretty much where we're at. You know, I, I think, Buck, it's, it's just calcified, received wisdom uh, on the left, and it's pervaded uh, into the mainstream media that uh, Islamic supremacist ideology, there may be no such thing as it, but it certainly doesn't cause terrorism. And that's their story, and they're sticking with it. So every single time something like this comes up, uh, they're going to have you know, a million alternative explanations for it and avoid at all costs the only explanation that makes any sense. It's almost, you know, it's it's really self-parody by now. But, you know, when you, I, I hate to tie everything back into the election, but, you know, when the left does what it's, uh, you know, supposedly doing its, uh, you know, post-mortem and it's soul-searching, if it has a soul or, you know, whatever it is it's doing, uh, and they they want to know how in the world did Trump win? Well, this is how Trump won. You know, the basically the 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 filter to the public is the media, and the public has decided that the media may not even just be an adjunct of the Democratic Party. I think it, it may be that the Democratic Party is an adjunct of the media, but whatever it is, it's so preposterous that I, I think. People just have now started to laugh at it. They think that things are, um, they think that things are true uh, when the media reports it in the other direction. I think they wait to hear. You know, if the media says uh, we're still searching for the motive, then they know exactly what the motive is, as if anyone had to tell them. Right, and if they had the leeway to come up with a, a distraction motive, they they certainly would. But in this case, it's kind of hard, right? I mean, Andy, you were a federal prosecutor. If if you were looking for a murder suspect, or if you had a murder suspect in custody, and you found a, I just said this before you came in here, you know, this this sort of uh, postulating this theory, you found a handwritten note saying, "This is why I killed the person. These were the reasons behind it," and you had that, and you presented that to a grand jury. Nobody would then look at you right and say, "Well, Andy, is that really motive?" <laughs> well, I guess unless I had a, a jury full of lawyers, but otherwise, otherwise, if they're just common sense people, I think you're exactly right. No, you know, look, those are, these are the cases, Buck, that, that never even go to trial. Or if they do go to trial, they go to trial on some extravagant theory like, uh, you know, the person was nuts or the person wasn't competent, or, you know, the, uh, uh, he was hypnotized or whatever. But these these cases are so overwhelming in terms of both, you know, your evidence of the actions that happened and the evidence of the intent and motivation behind it, that, that they never even go to trial. But I think that we need to, to bear in mind when we're looking at the media that they're really, at this point, uh, no longer a media 
in the traditional sense. They're really a, a, a part of a political movement. And in politics, if that's what you're, what's going to be your compass, if Islamic supremacist ideology is not the cause of terrorism, we all know that something must cause it. And they, they like being able to fill in that blank with whatever it is that's bothering the left that week, you know, whether it's uh, uh, income inequality or Bush-Cheney counterterrorism or Israel or, you know, whatever their bugaboo of the moment is, they fill in the blank of what causes terrorism with that. And we laugh at it, but from their perspective, it's a pretty powerful rhetorical tool to say that the things that you happen to be against and that your political opposition happens to be for are the causes of mass murder attacks. Speaking to Andrew McCarthy here, he is a contributing editor to National Review. You can read his latest on nationalreview.com. He also writes for PJ Media. Uh, Andy, for me, it seems I think that the Trump uh, the, the Trump election uh, was an instance where the media finally came out and said that there and you there have been sort of uh, some of this in the past. I think it was BuzzFeed that said on, on the issue of of uh, gay marriage, now just called marriage equality to, to cover all of this. But on the issue of gay marriage, there's no two. There are no two sides in our coverage or something like they they came out and said that, that they're openly hostile right. to one side and openly positioned. So that's been out there. But there was a widespread sentiment and they were saying it openly that it's different with Trump. We're actually going to be uh, we're going to be overt partisans, even though we're technically still calling ourselves journalists. I think that's Pandora's box. I, I think once they've, you know, now, why can't they apply that to anything? And why shouldn't we assume that they are, which, by the way, I do. Yeah, Buck, I, I think that's right, except I think it was going on before Trump. It's just more overt. I, I look at things like, for example, global warning, the warming, where they say the science is settled. Now, you know, any scientist who's worth his salt would tell you that the science is never settled. That's the whole point of science, right? We, we continue to check our premises, and uh, that's how we refine our knowledge. But what, they, what their position has been is if something is important enough to us, uh, the other side oughtn't be heard. And with Trump, you know, they manage because, uh, because Trump is a, is a gruff, uh, kind of larger-than-life, almost roguish character, they they kind of carried that uh, mentality to an extreme. But I think they've been doing it all along. If you look here, there, and everywhere, I mean, you and I have talked about uh, all the different ways they've tried to clamp down on speech, whether it's, uh, you know, this, this resolution they tried to do with the Organization of Islamic uh, Cooperation uh, in order to, to try to make it against the law to speak critically about Islam, or whether it's the you know strangling of uh, of campaign speech by these campaign finance regulations, but everywhere you look, or campus speech codes, or whatever, what the left is about is not allowing the other side to be heard. And with Trump, I think they just raised it to a new overt level, but it's something they've been about for a long, long time. Right. I mean, in, in, in the case of, of Dan Rather and in the, in the Bush-Gore uh, election and, and the forged documents, first of all, they still make movies called they, – they made a movie, I don't know if you know this, they had called Truth, that even though the yeah. documents were <laughs> fake, there's this uh, theory right. that the underlying story was still true, which is kind of an amazing yes, – right, right, right. An amazing right. position not, to take. What, is it, what, what does it say? It's not it's, – 
not true, but it's accurate. That's right. The, it's not true, but it's accurate. But but at least in that instance, you could say, well, the partisan motivations led led to that uh, egregious error, whether people believe that it was an error, or they just figured they could slip it by or not. But if they could pin it on malpractice. This time around, at least in the presidential uh, election side of things, it, it felt like they were just o- openly doing whatever they could for one side and saying it as opposed to just doing it, right? They were actually pushing yeah, for well, it. Yeah, but go- they are... The thing is, Buck, I think they are the side. I, I came to the conclusion during the election that we've been looking at this entirely wrong. You know, this idea that the, the, the media is an adjunct of the Democratic Party. I really think it's the other way around. I think that, the, you know, the media is representative of the culture and the direction in which progressives want to take the culture. And the Democratic Party is their vehicle. But it's not that they're carrying the Democrats' water. I, th- I actually think it's the other way around. I wanted to get to your piece, Andy, on PJ Media, where you talk about Trump and the enforcement of immigration laws. What do you really see happening here? I mean, where where is Trump going to go, given the promises that he's made? Uh, What do you think of Jeff Sessions as attorney general and how does he play into all this? I mean, how do you see this unfolding? Well, I think Sessions is a terrific choice for attorney general and for people who care about immigration enforcement. uh, He'll be superb as long as he's uh, permitted to do his job, which I think with with Trump, given the way Trump ran, uh, he'll have a a wide warrant to do that. But, you know, all this business, Buck, about, you know, mass deportations and, you know, we're going to build a sea to sea wall and it's going to be a million feet high and Mexico is going to pay for it. I I wouldn't hold my breath waiting for that to happen. Yeah, No no alligators with lasers on their heads, Andy? (laughs) No, I don't think so. Um, But, you know, you know, who knows? But I, I I think what you're going to have, if you want to have sensible enforcement that's actually going to do something about immigration, is put off any uh, talk about you know a comprehensive settlement, and let's let's work on getting the the problem to a manageable number, which means you do border enforcement and you do ordinary sensible law enforcement, which means you kick out of the country uh, all of the people who violate you know, federal and state laws, not just the, you know, not the laws that uh, strictly involve immigration and illegal presence in the United States, but, you know, ordinary felonies. There's plenty of those people. You get them out of here and you you prosecute the magnets of immigration, which are employers who illegally hire illegal aliens. So that if you dry up the, you know, the employment possibility and you get rid of the real bad apples, which you need to do anyway, but also shows a seriousness of purpose, and you get actual border security, which doesn't require a wall. It just requires the will to do it. Uh, I think then you see the immigration, the, the numbers of illegal aliens go down to a manageable amount, and then we can talk about what ought to be our triggers or our predicates for uh, the kind of legal immigration system that we want to have, get that number right. And then over time, the problem will fix itself. But it's not the kind of thing that needs to be comprehensively solved. It's not our fault that uh, people are living in the shadows. If you come to a foreign country that you're not allowed to be in, you should expect to live in the shadows. It's not, the, it's not our public's obligation to fix that problem. That's something most of the illegal alien population took on themselves. Um, but I think what you do is you create the incentive system for people who don't belong here to go back on their own without having to use our uh, justice system to do it. You get the illegal population down to a manageable amount, and then you can talk about things like 
if you want to give a modest amnesty, what categories of people, what they would have to show to qualify for it, and in the meantime, figure out what we need in the way of really uh, legal immigration that actually contributes, especially economically, to the country. You could solve this in 10 years, but there's no way it's going to get solved in 10 minutes. And I have to say, I've seen Democrats seemingly opposed to the idea of even deportations for illegal alien criminals, meaning that they, you know, they, they say that there's too many and this is going to uh, the long night of fascism will descend over communities where they have to go in. And, and they'll, so not only are they in favor, it seems to me, or at least some of the sort of leading lights of the Democrat left in media and I, I guess the Democratic Party, too, they're in favor of a mass amnesty. They're even opposed to deporting people that come here illegally, stay here illegally and then do illegal stuff on top of that. Well, but they're Democrats waiting to happen, right? So, um, you know, I mean, they have a reason. Uh, yeah, it's a constituency. Way, they got to take care of their constituents. I understand. <laughs> but, I, you know, I, I just think that they ought to be pinned down on that. If they want to be the party that wants to have an amnesty for, say, felons who are evading deportation by virtue of the fact that they're in American prisons because of felonies they've committed – then I think uh, from the Republican standpoint, they ought to let them, you know, be the party that wants to take that position. And also using the levers that are in place, we don't use them right now. I've spoken to some of the folks from the Center for Immigration Studies about this in the past. And my understanding right. is current current federal law, if if there is a country that will not take back its citizens that have committed crimes here that we are trying to deport, we stop issuing visas from that country. Full, the, the, that we have the full authority to do that, but the U.S. government won't. Yeah, do. we absolutely. It's insane if you don't. Right? You should cut off money. You should cut off visas. You should cut off. You know, look, we have pressure points that we can use with almost any country in the world. This shouldn't be. If we're if we're having trouble negotiating this, it's because we're tying you know both hands and a foot behind our backs. Andy McCarthy is a contributing editor at National Review. National Review. Read his latest at National Review Online. Also, you can follow him on Twitter. Andy, always appreciate you stopping by the Freedom Hut, sir. Thank you for uh, making some time. Thanks so much, Buck. Take care. Take care. Uh, team phone lines open 888-900-3393. Be right back. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Doing a three-hour radio show takes a lot of energy. You need a little extra boost? I've got an idea. Super Beets. Look, beets are a nutrition goldmine. They've got all kinds of vitamins, minerals, and electrolytes, and dietary nitrates. A little science for you here. Hashtag science. Dietary nitrates convert to nitric oxide in the body, which is the secret to it working. Now, when I take a little bit of Super Beets, I can tell you I feel a little boost to energy. It can be as quick as 20, 30 minutes, and all of a sudden I'm like, ooh, feels like something's giving me a bit of a boost. And I'm telling you, Super Beets are a fantastic product. You get the benefits of three whole beets in just one teaspoon with no beet taste. So you just mix them in there, a glass of water, put them in a protein shake, and bam, you've got your beets for the day. Call 800-311-4367 or go to teambuckbeets.com. 
You get a 30-day supply free. It comes with your first order and is backed by a money-back guarantee. Also receive a free book, Beat the Odds, and free shipping on your entire order. You'll love the results you feel with your first free canister, guaranteed, or you get your money back. Call 800-311-4367, teambuckbeats.com. That's 800-311-4367, or go to teambuckbeats.com. Leslie in Houston, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. Welcome. Hey, Buck. I was just um, curious of um, the, 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 if, if you did a Venn diagram, what would the overlap be between people who will think we'll never know why the OSU terrorist acted the way he did and people who are sure that the only motivation for voting for Trump was bigotry? I'll bet you there'd be a pretty high overlap. They don't seem to have any trouble making judgments about their, their fellow citizens. Oh yeah, no. I I've, I remember. I think one of my uh, one of my more poignant tweets during the election cycle was that when we're talking about the refugee situation and how many Syrian refugees the U.S. should let in. And I also, by the way, just Leslie's a side note. I really thought it was uh, interesting to get lectured by other journalists who have never, as I have, spent time in the refugee camps, gone to see the refugees, told their stories, worked with people, been to fundraisers. Who I mean, you know, anyway. So, but, you know, everyone, oh, they care about the refugees so much. Meanwhile, when we're talking about security for refugees, it was clear to me, as I tweeted out, that there are a lot of Americans who would rather believe their fellow Americans are racist than that they actually have concerns over ISIS infiltration of this country via the refugee stream. Mm -hmm. And this was when the refugee stream was was being used in Europe for specifically that purpose. So it wasn't some crazy scheme out of a, well, Tom Clancy novels are awesome, but you know what I mean, out of a Tom Clancy novel, this was actually happening. Uh, and yeah, I think you're right. I think that if you look at people that are that believe that the Trump vote was white lash, they if you ask anybody who thinks that the Trump vote was white lash and they will turn into a sort of, uh, you know, word salad, backtracking. Uh, oh, I don't know. On the one hand, on the other, you know, sort of mealy mouthed uh, nonsense uh, gibberish on what's the motivation of the Ohio state attacker. I think that you're right. I think the correlation would be over 90 percent. Okay, thanks a lot. All right, thank you, Leslie. Appreciate you calling in. Uh, Scott in New Hampshire, you're on the Buck Section Show. Welcome. Hey, how you doing? I'm good, sir. How are you? Not too bad. I just want to say I'm a pretty new listener off and on, but I've been trying to catch you now whenever I can on iHeartRadio. I get my phone, and I just carry it around with me. So Awesome. Welcome to um, Team Buck, Scott. Yeah, I, like the, I, I like your attitude. I like how your, your uh, show like flows, too. I, Thank you. I like how you bounce around a little bit. The topics are different and everything else. So I just wanted to say you got a fan out here. I'll try and get the other guys that I work with, but I don't know. They're pretty. Um, they don't listen to the radios like I do. Well, give it a shot, <laughs> Scott. Maybe you can get there. them to maybe you can get them to podcast it on their drive home or when they're you know cleaning up or whatever they're doing at home. Uh, that would be great. But uh, Scott, shield time, man. Thanks for joining Team Buck. Great too. to have you, you up in New Hampshire. Appreciate it. Uh. 888-900-3393 on the phone lines. Want to tweet at me at Buck Sexton. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton on the Facebook. We've got so much more. I'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Sexton Show. 
Team, we're joined now by Matt Welch. He is the editor-at-large of Reason Magazine. You can also read his latest online at Reason.com. The libertarian dynamo himself, Matt Welch. What is up, sir? How you doing, ma'am? You know, hanging in there. Hanging in there. Yeah. Just, just you know, chilling chillin like a villain, although I'm obviously a good guy. So let's talk, let's talk a bit about some, about some stuff, Matt, since we're on the radio and there's a lot of people listening. Let's start off with the Trump tweet about – now, there's many layers here, many layers – I know I'm already I'm starting with a Trump tweet. This is this is worrying. Uh, but about burning the flag, he said that people who burn the flag I want to make sure I get it exactly right here uh, should be. In, oh, here we go. Nobody should be allowed to burn the American flag. If they do, there must be consequences, perhaps loss of citizenship or year in jail. Uh, people have gone into complete freak out mode over this. What's what's your first set of reactions? And then we'll get into some of the other layers like, oh, wait, Hillary sponsored a no flag burning bill in 2005. But go ahead. Um, well, so I, I, generally speaking, as a libertarian, play defense against politicians, right? So I of look course. around and, and say, what are we vulnerable here against? And the good news is that um, when he's playing sandbox authoritarian uh, like this, um, we're not that vulnerable. We're vulnerable against him creating a politics where something might happen in the future. However, this has been adjudicated at the Supreme Court level, including by his uh, alleged lodestar of a Supreme Court justice, uh, Anthony Scalia, who ruled in 1989 uh, in a 5-4 decision that flag burning is protected speech, period. So there have been uh, periodic attempts by idiot populist politicians like Hillary Clinton and now uh, Donald Trump, although he hasn't actually made an attempt, um, to try to convert populist outrage at burning the flag into legislation. It would not pass constitutional muster, not just because of the pre-existing decision, but also because since then, the court has gotten even more <coughs> excuse me, uh, favorable towards protecting free speech. It's probably the best thing about the, the sitting Supreme Court, of which there are some problems here and there, uh, is its uh, First Amendment jurisprudence. So we're protected there, and to hastily add, um, He's only got a 52 to 48 Republican majority in the Senate, which means he relies on some swing senators with names like Mike Lee and Rand Paul. And do you really think guys like that are going to pass a bill uh, criminalizing and stripping the citizenship away from, which is a stronger idea than people have had in the past uh, for flag burning? No, that's not going to happen. So my first reaction is it's OK. We can chill out. Um, however, he's also the president-elect, and he sets the tone for politics in this country, and that is just some ugly, stupid, errant nonsense. And it's even though we shouldn't uh, go chase down the rabbit hole of Donald Trump's tweets every time he comes up with one, uh, it is worth pointing out, no, uh, no, son, that's not how we do it here in this country. Do you think he's playing 4D chess, as is said, and this is actually just an effort to distract from all the coverage of his international business ties and such that in the New York Times and others have been running with? I've, I've seen these suggestions out there. I've got to say, people, uh, there are people who seem to think that Donald Trump is 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 essentially the, the living embodiment of like Littlefinger from Game of Thrones, that, you know, he's always a step ahead. He's always like figured it all out. Uh, I, I don't give him that level of credit, but I have to say, in this context, it just seems like kind of a crazy thing for Trump to bring up. Like, why? Yeah, I mean, unlike, uh, you know, his response to uh, Jill Stein's recount attempts, uh, which provoked his, uh, hey, you know, there's three million illegal votes out there, which is crazy. Um, 
unlike that, uh, there isn't any uh, proximate cause to this, and it was in the morning, too, so he probably woke up. This is calculated. Um, so uh, you absolutely know when writing that tweet that this is going to dominate what the journalists talk about, because you're talking about the First Amendment, and journalists go nuts about that, at least when it does not have to do with Citizens United, which too many of those idiotic colleagues of mine uh, support, because they think that uh, their hatred of corporations is more important than their defense of political speech. Um, so, But he knew that that was going to happen. So yes, and you know, it's a, it's a cheap way for him to rally his base in general, and uh, and also to probably uh, uh, provoke a certain amount of flag burning by anti-Trump protesters, protesters in the near future. And you're never going to make it with the American people burning flags. It's just not going to get people on your side. So if the anti-Trump protests at the inauguration, which will be pretty big probably, um, is filled with a bunch of people burning flags, uh, then he's in a stronger and not weaker place. So yeah, he's distracting people. Uh, I don't know if it's right. It, it, by baiting them, if, if now Trump protesters all start lighting flags on fire to just show Trump, that's right, this is our, oh, then it looks so bad for them, but they're too dumb to realize. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, I, the, I think the proper response is to note it quickly, talk about how dumb it is and authoritarian it is, quickly, and move the hell on and start saying, okay, well, you know, who did he propose to be the uh, head of HHS today, and is that person good on Obamacare, and what might happen in, in the future? I mean, and, and to play to play defense or to assess rationally, and sometimes that'll include praising uh, the guy and his selections um, uh, about what's going to happen actually in the future. There is zero chance that any time in the near future there will be anything like a federal uh, prohibition on burning flags. That is not going to happen. But part of making it not happen is to point out whenever anyone brings it up, just like when they bring up bringing back the military draft, which I think is an asinine idea. Um, it's not going to happen, but when people bring it up, I say, yeah, go screw yourself. Right. Matt Welch laying it down. Uh, I also want to say that the first, the selective First Amendment absolutism uh, that you see, particularly from from the left, although I have to, on the, the right gets a little exposed on this too, though, because you get a lot of people – all with the flag that, you know, look, I, I respect the flag. I love the flag. I get it. Right. But I also the First Amendment matters a lot to me and the Constitution matters a lot to me. So and, and the Supreme Court ruled on this and Scalia ruled on this. But you still have a lot of people who are who are on. Well, just countrywide on both sides of the issue wish that flag burning was somehow prohibited, despite the fact that it's a clear violation principle. But I do think it's interesting that on the journalist side of things. They'll be like, oh, no, of course flag burning is fine. You know, it's offensive speech, and offensive speech needs to be protected. And then immediately, as you've seen some of these Twitter back and forths happen with people, it's, well, what about hate speech? Should that, oh, no, 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 hate speech is different. Hate speech is different. You know, why is yeah, it different? And, why why and is that watch, different? And to watch some of these same uh, people uh, and or categories of people um, also spend the past week oscillating between my God, John, Donald Trump is a creeping fascist, and my God, Fidel Castro was a, uh, a great humanitarian. It's like, you know what? Uh, you, you need to be a little bit more consistent in your life. Uh, Perfect transition, Matt Welch. You have a piece on Reason.com, four categories of Castro apologetics and the anti-individualism that knits them together. What are these categories, sir? Well, one of them is what we saw with uh, uh, half-wit uh, Trudeau up in Canada, 
um, this incredible euphemism that you see, and, it, and it's everywhere if you go looking for it. It is the you know uh, two or three uh, uh, words, or even just a single adjective like controversial, in which you stuff all of the possible objections. You acknowledge that uh, you know maybe there was some slightly controversial things about this guy, like oh I don't know he sent gay people to camps and wanted a first nuclear strike against the United States. He was sorry and about it, that though. To his credit, he felt like that might have been a little too far. I mean, Khrushchev, when you've gone too far for Khrushchev, it's yeah. kind of time to check yourself. Khrushchev um, is like, this is crazy. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, this euphemistic look that, uh, 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 that uh, tries to sidestep actual individual human suffering, which is the thing that gets all these uh, kind of categories together. Another one is just sort of celebrity endorsement, like, hey, there's a, there was actually a piece in the New York Daily News, and it's hard to believe this, that argued that um, uh, uh, Fidel Castro was the uh, best champion, fiercest champion for racial equality in the world over the last 50 years. This is, I can't begin to tell you, having been to Cuba twice uh, and knowing a little bit about the country, um, and interviewed a Black Panther there who wanted to come home. The guy who is like hijacked a plane to go to Cuba was bitching about how racist the revolution was. Uh, I wanted to go back to America, but he didn't want to. Wait, can can you give people a little bit? Because I, I really don't think that is something that a lot of a lot of folks ever hear about. I've read about this from friends of mine who cover Cuba closely and, and, and have, have talked to a couple of uh, Cuban uh, Cuban refugees you know, or people that have come to this country you know, from Cuba about this. Uh, very racist country. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's, like, uh, it's, it's a mixed, uh, very mixed country, right? Lots of I, I, I should uh, say the regime, by the way. I mean, very racist regime, but that's, yeah. Yeah, um, and, uh, and you'll, you'll see this both kind of in an, in a, in an eyeballing results. The people in power tend to be people with light uh, skin, Fidel Castro himself, uh, derived from Spanish um, uh, past, uh, the people uh, with the darker skin, who many of them were African slaves who were come over here and mingled with the population, they tend to live in ghettos that don't have running water or electricity uh, and are uh, kind of frozen out of uh, official positions. The revolution, when it was started, part of the, the stated goals of it was to end and eradicate uh, racism, which is uh, similar, I should point out, to many of the goals, like in constitutions in Soviet bloc Europe. And it's great that if you put letter into the law about various things, and then you go ahead and you don't govern like anything, because no one has any individual rights. Uh, so uh, you could say that you're going against racism, but the, the fact on the ground uh, looks a hell of a lot different. Meanwhile, so uh, Castro was always really smart about playing up to um, Western intelligentsia from the beginning of his revolution, when he was just like 20 guys in the hills in Sierra Madre in 1956, he brought in a gullible New York Times reporter named Herbert Matthews, one of the single worst journalists in the history of the United States. Saying a lot. And it is. Uh, I mean, he's right up there with Walter Durante. um, And he brought him in, and he fake marched his own people in kind of wearing different costumes, uh, pretending that they were coming from the field and sending reports of all their activities. He had 20 people. He made 20 people look like 500, and Herbert Matthews like, oh, my God, this is really serious, this challenge. So from that moment on, he knew about selectively winning and cultivating uh, uh, popular uh, figures out there, and he did this in part also with uh, the radical chic in America in the 60s, especially with Black Panthers. So even while he was repressing people at home and repressing black people at home, he was accepting in a whole bunch of people hijacking planes, including Black Panthers who'd gotten into shootout with cops. 
Asada Shakur, for example, which is one reason why Black Lives Matter posted an asinine uh, medium post uh, this uh, week saying that we, we have to defend Comrade Castro against, uh, you know, people uh, saying that he was a bad person. Um, it's because he sheltered Asada Shakur. He sheltered Bill Brent, who's the guy I interviewed. He's now uh, dead and a bunch of other people who hijacked planes in the late 60s and early 70s. But when you actually talk to some of those people, they would complain about the racism of Fidel Castro and his minions. So um, this this kind of, uh, like Tom Morello, the, the guitarist. Rage Against the Machine. Yeah. An audio slave. I actually had a pretty funny exchange with him on uh, on Twitter uh, the other day because uh, he sent out a thing saying like, hey, you know what, um, have you been to Cuba? Because I have, and you know it's it's mixed. But we should really listen to people like Malcolm X and you know Pope Francis and Nelson Mandela, who say that he was a great guy. It's sort of outsourcing your opinion to famous people who are able to come in and to and, and had uh, in some cases, like in the case of Mandela, had a material interest. Cuba really supported him, hoping that he was going to be a communist uh, revolutionary instead of a more uh, unifying figure that he turned out to be once he got out of jail. Uh, so it's outsourcing this to your betters um, and thinking that he must be a great guy. Well, no, he's not a great guy. Um, and uh, what, what quick funny thing about Tom Morello and Rage Against the Machine, when I was there in 98, this uh, kid, uh, like 18, 19-year-old, absolutely hated Castro, was always getting harassed. He was really into rap metal. He loved Rage Against the Machine, which is an objectively Marxist band from Irvine, California. He loved them to death because they're, you know, they're really hard and they sound great. And he sat down with me and wanted me to transcribe the exact lyrics using you know, an old like, ghetto blaster um, uh, to uh, Killing in the Name of, their most famous song. We only and got about 60 hard. seconds, Matt. We've got to go, so go for it. So uh, at the end, he said, he said, well, it's just against the cops, right? And I said, yes. And it's just great that objectively Marxist music by Castro apologists are taken as sustenance by people who absolutely despise and loathe Castro, which should teach us about both individual freedom and how people who make their own art are not in charge of it. It's all of us who use it to galvanize ourselves against authoritarians because freedom is awesome the end. Freedom is awesome. Matt Welch is also awesome. You can read his stuff at Reason.com. Mr. Welch, great to have you, sir. Thank you, Buck. Team, we'll be back. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at TheBlaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show. Mary in Indiana, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Thanks for calling. Yeah, hello, Buck. Hey, first time caller, and I let you know that I just love you. You're one of my favorites. So I'm 78 years old almost. Well, thank you but so I'm much, Mary. Calling about the flag. Yes, ma'am. I was born in this country. I love America. I love our military. And you know, I was thinking, I was listening to that. I I can see not. Uh, putting them in prison but but for me and that's my own personal feelings i think anybody that burns america flag that stands for the greatest nation on earth and the greatest military if they burn our flag they it should be uh you know they ha- should have to pay a fine or something that's my feelings on it and if they uh, these people that won't uh, pledge our flag allegiance and they don't like our national anthem, 
they're not really Americans to me. Well, Mary, that's, you certainly, that's what the I'd good news is you've got the you right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just saying because I love our military and I love this nation, Buck. And I tell you, I thank the world of you. I, you are so intelligent. And you've been around in the world where we'll never know. And I, I haven't called you before, but every time it's time for you to come on, I tell the kids, get Buck on there. <laughs> He's on there. <laughs> Mary, so that's, that's very kind. You thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's an All honor right. to have you listening. All thank right, you. Bye. Yeah, All right, chill time, day. Mary. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Um, oh, that was really nice. I'm in a good mood now. All right, we got to go into hour three, maybe a buck brief. Stay with me. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, welcome to hour three. Let's kick it with a buck brief. You are entering the Blaze Threat Ops Center. This is a secure space. All outside comms are down. Prepare to receive the buck brief. Adam Crato is on the line now with us. He is a senior writer for the Washington Free Beacon. He's covering a lot of national security for the Beacon. Check out freebeacon.com. Adam, great to have you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Intel, this is a piece you've got up on freebeacon.com right now. Intel says that Iran mm-hmm. is using commercial planes to smuggle weapons to terrorists. I thought Iran was supposed to be our friend. There was the nuclear deal. What happened? Yeah, that's a really good question, I would say. But um, look, in in all seriousness here, um, the Obama administration, since the deal, has been making a push, uh, and it's really been in the works for quite some time, to help sell planes to Iran. The Iranians say this is part of the deal. The United States agrees, maintains we're obligated to facilitate these types of commercial airline sales. Here's the problem. There's a hitch in this, as there always is with uh, this Iran deal that we talk about. Uh, Iran's air carrier, Mahan Air, which would uh, receive um, a certain amount of these planes from Boeing and French Airbus, um, they routinely smuggle weapons to Lebanon, Damascus, other places um, to help terrorists. These weapons are put into the undercarriage with the rest of suitcases, and once the plane lands, smuggled out. Iran also has a history of using commercial airliners in its military for military purposes. So the question then becomes, why are we helping them get planes that will likely be used for nefarious activities? I've heard no good response from uh, the Obama administration on this, quite honestly. Obama administration just pretending not to know this. They're not. They're not denying that this is happening, right? So they're just hoping that their silence is all. The, their, their silence is all the cover they have to give this. Yeah, quite honestly. And look, they can ride out the clock. They're near the end. Uh, I think we're also going to see the Obama administration in its final months. Um, push international banks to do more business with Iran. They're going to try to stop Iran sanctions from passing the Senate. That's uh, going to be uh, near a vote later this week. And I think the response is 
nil. They don't have to answer for what they're doing. They're just going to continue to say, look, this is what we're doing under the deal, and we will follow the letter of that deal until our final day uh, in office. Do you have any expectations or any sense uh, and any prognostications you want to offer for what the Trump administration is going to do under the framework of the Iran deal? I mean, I know there's been a lot of talk about this. What do you think? There has been a lot of talk, and and it's something that comes up frequently in uh, source calls that I do with uh, various people across the Hill and elsewhere. And honestly, we we don't exactly know. Um, I would expect a Trump administration, just from the picks we've seen so far, a Mike Pompeo, who's going to be at the CIA, uh, a Michael Flynn, people like this, are clearly and vocally opposed to the Iran deal. I think that they may make some moves to scrap it entirely. But at the end of the day, I I think that's not going to be possible. I think we're going to have to work to tighten the deal and tell the Iranians, quite frankly, party time is over. And now we have to get serious because we're not going to let you get this nuclear weapon. Let's talk a bit about Twitter and what's going on with the Muslim Brotherhood. We know that Twitter boots people off for, well, a whole bunch of different reasons, but uh, it can even include really speech that's considered to be by Twitter or by community standards outside of, you know, outside of boundaries of civilized discussion, I don't know, whatever, however they want to frame it. But they'll boot, they'll boot people off. Meanwhile, they've given the blue check, the much, uh, much desired blue check of verification to the Muslim Brotherhood, Adam. What's going on here? <laughs> They, they certainly have, and you're right. Uh, I think the context here is important. Uh, Twitter is supposed to be an open platform social media site. That means we don't censor an individual's language, even if it might be offensive or sometimes inappropriate. Certainly harassment and violence is another thing. But we've seen conservative pundits and others kicked off of Twitter under this guise of uh, their speech crossing some sort of esoteric line that Twitter establishes. But yet... Recently, Twitter granted verification, that little blue check mark to the Muslim Brotherhood's official mouthpiece. Now, the problem here is that the Muslim Brotherhood uh, is banned by several countries as a terrorist group. Egypt, of course, bans it. Saudi Arabia, Russia, others. The Muslim Brotherhood routinely, via this Twitter feed, disseminates propaganda that is meant to inspire violence, meant to foster hatred against Jews, Israel, others. So where's the line for Twitter? It makes no sense here. Um, I find it difficult to comprehend. And one more one more here on freebeacon.com. There's some problems at DHS, Department of Homeland Security, with giving out green cards. This is not yeah. confidence inspiring for our federal bureaucracy. What's what's happening here? No, this is a good one. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, the uh, DHS here is really, really in a bad place in terms of the way it issues green cards and the way that it keeps track of them. Apparently, the system they use, it's called uh, ELIS. It's an electronic immigration system. Um, it was supposed to do all of this wonderful stuff in terms of digitizing files, keeping them electronically. Apparently, though, it can't do virtually anything. The one or two big tasks it's supposed to handle Uh, It's incapable of doing. So what's this lead to? Duplicate green cards, thousands of them, green cards that include incorrect information, green cards being sent to addresses where the person should not be getting a green card. Um, And the inspector at DHS has warned quite clearly that because of this glut 
of green cards between duplicates and others. Uh, terrorists, uh, individuals who should not be here, can access U.S. benefits, uh, have the benefit of a somewhat accurate document in terms of immigration that might permit them access to a facility or a place they should not have access to. And really the weirdest one I saw, for some reason, this system, when an individual is supposed to be granted temporary immigration status for two years, it's granting 10 years instead. So it, it's really a mess, and uh, we see it getting worse and worse every year. There's no fix. Adam Credo is a senior writer for the Washington Free Beacon. You can read his latest on freebeacon.com, along with all the other fine writers over at The Beacon. Adam, great to have you, sir. Talk soon. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Buck. That's it for the Buck Brief today. You are leaving a secure space. Cell phones may be turned on. Disavow all knowledge of this meeting. Remember to protect sources and methods. Maintain good OPSEC at all times. Phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. Team Buck, we will be right back. Buck Sexton. Dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network. You know, Tim, I, I wanted to return to something that we were talking earlier in the show, or at least I was touching on uh, earlier in the show, about how there, the, there's the constant freakouts about every day. There's like a new point of freakout about Donald Trump. And we're, we're to be told that this is uh, fascism coming and uh, th- everything is going to be terrible. Um, I've never seen the Lego movie, but I believe there's a song in it, Everything is Awesome. The Trump presidency is everything is awful, right? That's what they're trying to tell us all the time. And, you know, I I put on the, uh, I just go through the New York Times front page right now to see uh, Trump can't simply strip flag burners of U.S. citizenship. This is on the front page. Okay, we all know that, but they're running a story about how he can't just strip flag burners of citizenship. We're, We're aware and he also has steep hurdles for vow to revive waterboarding. Here's how to fix Trump's conflict of interest problem. How many could Trump really deport of the 11 million illegal immigrants? I mean, the, this is the entire front page. The, the front page of the New York Times is just uh, all an effort to bash, undermine Trump. And look, that's fine in the sense that they're allowed to do that. And I get it. But it creates this this real climate of of fear with people. It's not even it's not even just a climate of opposition and animosity. But people keep saying that they are scared. And while I think that it is foolish and in some cases a little childish for them, there are many cases childish for them to be scared. The more I look at the rhetoric and and more importantly, the reportage of the left, the more I see they're trying to scare people. They're actively trying to frighten. They're not just saying that Trump is going to do a bad job as president. They're not just saying that Trump has conflicts of interest or that he's boorish with his language or that he's, you know, uh, a, a savage in the way he interacts with women or whatever. They're not just saying that kind of stuff. They're saying, be afraid, be fearful for your children. This is you saw this even with the cast of Hamilton when they gave that very unnecessary and I thought very rude lecture to Mike Pence when he was trying to enjoy a Broadway play with his family. 
but this notion that people have to, that, that they're afraid, they shouldn't be afraid. But also, I want people to stop telling them to be afraid. And when I mean people, I'm talking about major major newspapers and cable news uh, channels and all and uh, broadcast news channels, all the rest of it. And you had uh, on Morning Joe. I didn't see this uh, this morning, um, but I, I saw the clip of it. I sometimes get to tune into Morning Joe. It depends on. Uh, where I am in the morning. Uh, and Morning Joe, there was an exchange with, I don't know who this guy is. I've seen him on once or twice before, so pardon me for forgetting his name. But it's Joe Scarborough and some guests they have on. And they get into this. Play it. If you look at this country's own history, in moments of hysteria, fear, right. conflict, right. there have been exceptions. Internment was an exception. Well, who's hysterical right now? And uh, we can we can have that debate later. No, no. I, who's hysterical right now? I'm, what I'm saying to you is, you may be right that in the absence of any kind of hysteria, national hysteria, fear, right. terrorist attack, war, whatever, in the absence of all that, bluster may remain bluster, a guy tweeting may remain a guy tweeting, and all may be well. That's one scenario. I just, think, I just think we need to be alive to a second scenario that our country also gives us the basis to think about, and which I think is underrepresented in some of these conversations, which is that at certain moments, a terrorist attack of a particular kind that fills people with fear gives right. the president a license to do things that he could not do two days before. We've been through a lot of terrorist attacks and these unspeakable horrors that this individual seems to be alluding to have not have not happened, has not occurred. So what, and, and but to return to the, the core of the argument, I should say. Uh, he says in moments of hysteria, and, and this is a widespread sentiment. I mean, this is he's just an ex- an example of this, but you hear this all over. The New York Times front page right now is is hysteria. It's not hysterical. It is full of hysteria. Although maybe you think it's funny too. Um, they're pushing this notion that we're in this that we're in this particular uh, moment of irash of irrational thought and behavior in this country. And when we say, wait a second, no, the only people who are in an irrational moment are the people who keep yelling about this being an irrational moment. They, it, it sort of short circuits their argument, right? So they're saying, you know, there could be a national hysteria. And I say to them, well, the hysteria is coming from one side and it's the people saying there's going to be a national hysteria, right? They're, the, they're, they're playing both uh, arsonist and fire marshal. Uh, this is the game. This is what they're doing. They're creating these uh, they're, or they're hyperventilating and exaggerating over these stories that come out of the Trump campaign or that come out of a tweet or whatever and making people more fearful and then saying, see, everyone's fearful. Look at how terrible things are. Uh, this this is something that I, I think we need to call for call out for what it is. Uh, it's it's deeply. Uh, destructive, especially at, a, at you know when a moment when you think that maybe there could be I know whenever someone talks about unity, people in, in, at the national level they, they're going to get a lot of folks are going to sort of roll their eyes and boo and and I get that right because we are very divided on a lot of things. American people don't agree on on, on a whole bunch of things. That's not a made up. Con- it's not some made up controversy that Democrats and Republicans actually really don't see eye to eye on some stuff. Um, and there are going to be more of these issues, I think, that that play out early on in the Trump administration um, than in, in previous administrations because there's such a heightened scrutiny on everything that Trump does uh, and and his administration does that we will we will see things um, 
get nasty quickly. Uh, we will see, I believe, a very uh, a very real effort to not just smear the presidency from the sake uh, from the sort of perspective of making people think that he's a, a tyrant. I mean, a fascist. It's one thing to say, "Don't vote for Trump; he's a bad guy." Vote for somebody else. Something to say. Don't go along with his agenda. Democrats in Congress need to oppose his agenda. That's that's America. That's fine. They want to find a way to get him out of office. They're going to try to they're going to try to Nixon this guy as soon as they possibly can. And in order to do that, they are creating a climate of hysteria by constantly uh, by constantly overstating every remote possibility of Trump doing something that really would upset them, but. And not even that upset them, that would sort of upset our constitutional order. I just have to say, I take a step back from this for a moment and think that we had eight years of a president who promised to, quote, fundamentally transform this country. To fundamentally transform the country. And which, by the way, he did not succeed in doing. And that was kind of a a grandiose and an absurd promise. But. He said he was going to do that. And the media were all were not just OK with it. They were cheering for it. And by the way, I really like Andy McCarthy's point about how it's I'm not I think he might be right. I don't I'm not sure that the media is an outgrowth of the Democratic Party. I'm, I am starting to think the Democratic Party is an outgrowth of the media. Who has more power? The president of a left leaning news network, the editor in chief of a major newspaper or a member of Congress? Uh, I mean, maybe you could say Nancy Pelosi. You know, there are a few more powerful members of Congress on the Democrat side, but certainly, you know, the person who runs NBC News, a lot more powerful. The person who runs ABC or the person who runs you name it has a lot more power and has much more ability to dictate the conversation than pretty much at this point any politician of the Democratic Party with the exception of Barack Obama, certainly than members of Congress, certainly than any Democrat functionaries. Right, people that work for the DNC or whatever. So I'm starting. It's interesting because I end up. I feel like I, we talk about the media and the narrative and the Democrats, but the old paradigm was that the media was doing the bidding of the Democratic Party. Perhaps the new paradigm is that the Democratic Party is doing the bidding of the media, and that the journalistic uh, sort of the the Democrat left establishment in this country with entertainment Hollywood the news media and all of that at the top actually exerts its influence into the Democratic Party machinery much more so than the other way around. I, I think that's at least an interesting way to, to consider um, what I do believe to be something of a, of a paradigm shift. And I mean, you got to think about it this way. You know, would you rather uh, would you rather be if, if you were trying to influence the direction of this country on policy, more important to be a primetime anchor at uh, at CBS News or be the primetime anchor, you know, of CBS Evening News or to be a member of Congress or even a senator. OK, well, or, or to be the head of the DNC. I, I think you could start to argue this and see where I'm going. Also, by the way, should be noted, we have currently a president elect who is a TV star. We have previously a president for eight years who was a creation of the media more than a creation of the Democratic Party. Hillary Clinton owned the Democratic Party. Barack Obama beat her and got elected. The media went along with the whole narrative and the two autobiographies and all this sort of stuff, but they were the ones that pushed him along. And you see now in the Trump administration, some of the people who are at least under consideration 
for top posts in the White House, they're media people. They're television stars, right? They're people that are, are known from their appearances on TV more than anything else. Yeah, sure, some of them have relevant backgrounds, but this is an interesting, you know, it, it used to be that the, the government, it felt like the government was controlling the media, and the more I'm seeing it now, it feels like the media actually controls the government. And I think with Trump's victory over the media, you start to see how these different uh, paradigms shift and play out. So anyway, we'll get more into this. Uh, I, I'm sort of thinking about this one as I go, or I'm, I'm sort of, it's sort of hitting me as, as we discuss it, but I, I'm going to give this more thought. 888-900-3393 on the phones. Uh, Got a bunch more things I want to talk to you about. So, team, if you have a minute, give me a call. Otherwise, stay with me. We'll finish up some topics and uh, finish up strong on the show. Be right back. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. You know, one of the things when I was in government that I had a, a tough time with, and it's one of the reasons why I decided to leave after uh, about six years, uh, was that I felt like the people who were making all the decisions weren't the people that had sort of earned, uh, or necessarily earned their stripes along the way, not, you know, to get too specific about it. But um, in the case of when Barack Obama was elected president, I mean, the notion that I would be writing for the PDB as a CIA analyst for Barack Obama was, and I know people say, are saying the same thing about Trump, and some people are even refusing to you know, be any part of a Trump administration, even as a civil servant. Um, but it always felt like the people at the top or who were really making actual decisions were those who were either known or connected or both, right? They either were known quantities themselves, known meaning, I mean, and I mean famous, by the way. You know, I mean household names, or connected to the famous. So, yeah, maybe you're a Clinton or maybe you're somebody very close to the Clintons. But those are the people that actually make the decisions. It seemed to me to be rare that the people that rose to the top ranks of government in, you know, government agencies. Um, yeah, I'm talking about the government apparatus now. I'm not speaking specifically about uh, elected office, right? Because that's a whole sort of separate discussion. But I mean, the people that run the different uh, different government institutions, the people that become Secretary of State, become you know head of the CIA, are either known or connected to those who are known. And it felt like, you know, better to become uh, better to become a known quantity in the outside world and then move into government than try to just be in government all the way through. If you had aspirations, which by the way I don't, but if you had aspirations of ever being a very senior government official, uh, n- now I think you can even add to that more. It's, that that the, the cult of celebrity um, that extend, the, the cult of celebrity is something that anybody who wants high government office has to cultivate in one way or another right Every, it's it's unthinkable now for a senior uh, a senior government official to not write a book when they're done and and more and more it seems rare if they weren't in government all their career to not have written a book beforehand too right everyone's got to have a book everyone's got to have you know my you know my my life, my way of doing things, my view on, uh, and then they get to be in government office, you know, big, big time government office, secretary of state, cabinet position, whatever it may be. Um, you see some of the people that are under consideration for 
uh, Trump administration. And as I said, some of them are best known, although there are other picks some of the picks that are coming out today. Look, I've never heard of some. I've never heard of some of them. Um, so clearly there are some technocrats that are getting jobs and there are people like Mike Flynn who are career civil uh, career public servants, I should say. And I, I, I hear I hear all that, too. But it does feel like we've entered, especially because Trump, I mean, Trump is literally a reality TV star. Uh, we've entered an era where fame is the most important political currency you can have. Uh, much more so than a record of accomplishment, uh, much more so than and, and an ability to harness mass media to your advantage. Those are the most important. It's more important than anything else, more important than fundraising. Other people do the fundraising for you. I mean, at the very top level, people always talk about, oh, you know, so-and-so, all the different political skills. No, if, if you're famous and you know, how to, you know how to work the media, you can actually, you can become the president. I think this, is prove, I think this has been proven with Trump. I think it's uh, been proven with Obama. I mean, both in very different ways, but very adept. With Obama, it was just sort of, you know, letting them carry him across the finish line, right? But, with, but also, to be fair, gives a good speech. Much more charismatic. You know, you've got to it's you do yourself no favors by underestimating the opposition. And when you line up Obama and Hillary, you listen to this, watch the two of them, listen to them give speeches. You know, you and I know Obama, not good on policy, kind of phony on a lot of different things. But he does sound does sound the part, you know, does give a good speech, does have a sort of personal charisma, um, does have a family that seems like a functioning and coherent family that's actually, you know, unlike the Clintons. Uh, and, you know, with Hillary, you got these speeches, and it's horrible. You don't want to hear it. It's terrible. So, But so he was much more, uh, it was much more likely that the media was going to be able to take him and elevate him to the highest office. We've seen that. Okay. But I, I do think now we're in a place where you're going to see it's more and more common for famous people to be put in top government positions more so than people with a record of expertise in the area. This is this is where we're heading. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I, I don't. You know, I leave that to you to determine on a case by case basis. But you're going to see famous people in power more than you're going to see people that have really mastered subject matter that's applicable to the job at hand. Um, uh, that's a trend that has been increasing, right? And, and this is this is not new, but I just I think Trump has sort of reached a there's a new level here with this. You have uh, Governor Schwarzenegger. Isn't that a funny thing to say? I mean, as somebody who grew up watching uh, 80s action movies, and it was really like a kind of a, uh, almost like a, a cultural religious practice for I mean, just watching, watching action movies with my brothers. Uh, and I, I can sit here and if, if we wanted to, and I, if I ever brought one of the brothers, one of the Sexton brothers on, we could just go back and forth and they could just throw random lines from, Many of the Schwarzenegger movies, some of the Bruce Willis movies, uh, certainly Ghostbusters, a whole bunch of movies that are out there. The Ghostbusters is not an action movie, but you get what I'm saying. Uh, and I could just sort of fill in the blanks with where the, what the next lines were. We could do that. Um, but that I grew up watching these movies, and Schwarzenegger became the governor of California. Jesse Ventura, who was with Schwarzenegger in Predator, which I think is one of Schwarzenegger's best all-time movies. And I will say Ventura, as much as he's become a Looney Tunes guy, you know, in recent years, uh, was good in Predator. And that's a fantastic movie, by the way, if you haven't seen it. I, I love it. I think it stands up. It's really creative. It's cool. Pure action. Kind of tip. really sort of, I think, is the one of the paramount moments, sort of typifies and exemplifies an era of American action movie making that 
has since been lost. Uh, but Ventura became governor of Minnesota. Uh, Al Franken, you know, not as not not as big a person in the Senate as you know a lot of others, but you know, an SNL star. I mean, this uh, Reagan. I know some you'd say uh, actor, but. I think this is accelerating, right? I think because media is more of a part of our day-to-day lives all the time. You know, you're carrying around a television in your pocket now with your phone. And not only are you carrying around a television with a pocket in your pocket, you're also carrying around on-demand video of various shows and everything else in your pocket. And you're carrying around social media platforms that have, you know, very soundbite-friendly uh, and, you know, short, shareable social media clips of all of different figures who want public office. So it's now become, whereas I, I feel like in the past there was much more weight put on someone's platform and their, their history and everything else. Now it's, it's, it's a media war. Politics is a straight up media war. Now it's kind of what I'm getting at. Oh, by the way, as a side note with action hero stuff, I just want to say, uh, Steven Seagal, I mentioned this to you has been given Russian citizenship and for a while, he would be seen in, in the company of, of Vladimir Putin. This is not quite as weird as, for example, Kim Jong-un's uh, obsession with Dennis Rodman because he liked the 90s-era Jordan Pippen-Rodman Bulls so much. So Dennis Rodman became sort of that. Do you remember that Dennis Rodman went over to North Korea and was foolish enough to say some sort of nice stuff about Kim Jong-un, and everybody's like, look, Dennis Rodman shouldn't be your special envoy, you know, de facto or not. Uh, we've got two international film stars that have kind of attached themselves to Vladimir Putin. One of them is Gerard Depardieu, who left because the taxes were way too high. They were paying, taking too much, too many of his francs out of his pocket. It was unacceptable. So he uh, he got Russian citizenship. And I actually understand that because when he came into, or uh, when Hollande, who actually is pretty good on the terrorism stuff sometimes, or at least sounds better on the terrorism than Obama does when he talks about terrorist acts. Calls it terrorism right away. Calls it Islamic terrorism right away. So, so even a French socialist seems more capable of recognizing terror sometimes than our own president does. Side note, uh, but Hollande came in and they had the millionaire's tax. I think it was like 70% at a certain level. It was really, really high. So Gérard Depardieu, uh, he le- you can't say the guy's name in Americanized. You know what I mean? You got to be, you know, you got to be like, yeah. Um, G-P-R-D. Uh, um, yeah. Oh, yes, there it is, the music. It is perfect. We're going to sit here and talk about it for a while. Gérard Depardieu has a Russian passport. He's the most uh, amazing French actor. He plays Cyrano de Bergerac, a fantastic movie. John, you know you can't play that music without getting me fired up. It's like I'm back on the Champs-Élysées, walking down the street. Calling out to the women of France, I am here, Buck Sexton, it arrive. But I digress. Big time. That was like a nuclear digression. All right. Uh, so Depardieu became a Russian, um, Russian citizen, or has Russian citizenship, I should say. And now you've got Steven Seagal, whom I've seen far too many uh, Steven Seagal movies. Um, I've seen Steven Seagal movies that probably should never have been made. A lot of them are kind of the same movie to me, too. It's a guy wearing a, like a, a, a white undershirt um, doing Aikido in, like, the Bronx. I don't know if you guys have... If those of you are familiar with Steven Seagal know what I'm talking about. And he's just sort of like, yay, like, I'm a tough guy who's a cop who's in the Bronx doing Aikido. It's like, wait, what? 
And also, if you watch enough of his movies, you'll see that the uh, the Aikido that he does, it's like the same series of movements over and over again. You know, there's not really a lot of... of although early Steven Seagal is, is sort of a slender, limber fellow. And like later on, he gets larger and larger till, till he gets to sort of like poncho-wearing phase and his ponytail gets bigger and then he gets to sort of poncho-wearing and wears sunglasses a lot. Um, but Under Siege, as action movies go, Under Siege is a great movie. Uh, Under Siege is uh, fantastic. Um, if you haven't seen that, Tommy Lee Jones is in it. Very, very good. This is where I'm just talking about random movie. It's like random movie Tuesday for no apparent reason. Um, why was I telling you about all this? Oh, yeah, that's right. Steven Seagal is, uh, also, has also been given Russian citizenship. He's often seen in the company of Vladimir Putin. And I just think it's interesting that that's also where this... And by the way, Barack Obama hangs out with Jay-Z and Lady Gaga. And you, you see the crossover between politicians and celebrity now is... Uh, more common than ever before, and also the sort of attachments between politicians and celebrities, at least in this country, uh, uh, politicians on the left and celebrities, very, uh, very clear. They almost have a symbiotic relationship between the two of them, right? The actor gets to feel, and do we say actress anymore? We're not allowed to say that anymore. Is it like flight, is it like stewardess? You used to say flight attendant, actor and actor. There's no actress. Okay. I don't I can't keep up. So uh, Steven Seagal has been given Russian citizenship. He's in a commercial, by the way, a hat tip to Heat Street for picking this up for a cell phone provider there. And he's like the new tough guy in Russia. He's wearing a giant fur coat, which is kind of funny. Play the audio just for fun. Hey, music. Tender snow crunches under the feet. Like the bones of my enemies. What does he want from them? Internet internet yeah, so he's famous and whatnot like that. Uh, he's now doing cell phone commercials in Russia for for Russian audiences, has Russian citizenship. But it's because Vladimir Putin, part of his... Right, there was a serious reason why I was talking about all this with you. Uh, I promise. Part of his uh, cult that he's created around himself is that he's a tough guy. So he pulls Steven Seagal into the mix, who's sort of an American tough guy who clearly also has an audience in Russia. You know, I mean, I don't know. I don't think Angela Merkel is going to pull Hasselhoff by her side and be like, oh, hello, Mr. Hasselhoff, you're so... Guten Tag. Although maybe that would help her. I think I think Merkel's had a tough had a tough go of it recently in the polls. Uh, but that's not part of her being a rock star is not part of Angela Merkel's thing. Um, it, being a tough guy is part of Vladimir Putin's thing. You see the resonance of the power that celebrity has for politicians, such that even if they can't, uh, or rather, even if it's not them directly pulling certain celebrities along to add to their own sort of cult of celebrity is now something that is commonplace. It happens. And we see this with Putin. You see this with Obama. You're going to see this with Trump. I just think it's interesting. Really, the underlying... I'm now sort of... Um, this, is bottom, or, uh, this is bottom line at the end. It should be bottom line up, up front. What I'm really trying to say is that we're living now in a world that increasingly is ruled by celebrities. Celebrities actually rule the world. For better, for worse. Mostly for worse. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network.
This is the Buck Sexton Show. Team, uh, this is interesting to me because I one of the things that I like to talk about is is wisdom, especially like wisdom about nutrition and science. That's not really wisdom. That's just sort of stuff that people say. I remember people saying, oh, eggs, eggs will give you high cholesterol, don't eat eggs. I eat uh, three eggs almost every day, maybe five days a week, I'd say. And I'm not saying I'm some picture of good health. I've got all kinds of, you know, my own issues that I deal with. But I believe strongly in eggs. And I could tell you um, uh, that the world's oldest person, according to Yahoo here, who is, 100 and, who is 117, she believes raw eggs. Uh, she says she eats three eggs a day. Two raw and one fried. Uh, and she's never eaten much fruit or vegetables. I think eggs are good for you. That's all I'm trying to say. I, I'm a big egg believer. So, And the lady who's 117 years old is like, she eats raw eggs. That's some next level stuff right there. And so people, they say these things like milk isn't good for you, eggs aren't good for you. Eh, I definitely think eggs are good for you. And the stuff about the cholesterol, by the way, has changed. So that's my little uh, unnecessary tidbit of... Uh, nutrition wisdom for the day uh, team great to have you of course here in the freedom hut please download the show today share it with a friend that's all i want for christmas and also until tomorrow shield tie the buck sexton show only on the blaze radio network